Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Today we look once more at this very important character named Abraham. He is the premier role model of faith that is cited in Hebrews chapter 11. And he was a remarkable man. In fact, Abraham is claimed by three major world religions. Of course, the Jews claim Abraham as the father of their nation. God took a Gentile, idolatrous man who lived in Mesopotamia, and he created an entire new ethnicity through that man. Abraham is the father of the Jews. The Muslims claim Abraham, for Abraham's other son named Ishmael is the father of the Arab peoples. And of course, Christians claim Abraham. You say, well, you can't claim him biologically. That's true. But we claim Abraham theologically. We claim him by faith. For Galatians chapter 3 tells us that if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And that chapter also speaks of the fact that he's the father not of the circumcision only, but also the father of all them that walk in the steps of that same faith of our father Abraham. So three major world religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity lay claim to Abraham. He was a remarkable man, but he was not a sinless man. In fact, none of these heroes or heroines of faith in the Bible were sinless. Each of the Bible patriarchs and prophets had his or her own dark side. And the Bible records not only their successes, but their stumblings and failures as well. That's one of the great proofs for the divine inspiration of the scripture is that it tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly of these folks. You know, if I was going to write a story about my life, I think I would minimize, if not leave out altogether, the darker scenes in my life, wouldn't you? But the Bible tells the story of these great heroes of faith, Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal and of the grove on Mount Carmel, you remember? But then it also tells us not only about that success, it tells us how he sat down under a juniper tree and requested that God would take his life. The Bible tells us about not only Moses' courage in the face of Pharaoh, but it also tells us about his temper tantrum when he smote the rock when God said to speak to it. The Bible tells us not only about David's glory as the king of Israel and his conquest of Goliath, but it tells us about his notorious sin with Bathsheba. It paints the picture in realistic terms. And the Bible tells us that Abraham was a sinner. Even though he is such a great sterling example of living by faith, 
this man had his darker moments. In fact, when God said, leave your home, your family, your parents, Abraham took many of his relatives with him. He took his father, Terah, with him. He took his nephew, Lot, with him. No telling who else was in the entourage. So partial obedience is the first thing that we see in Abraham. And then you remember, don't you, the dishonest scheme that he concocted to protect himself when he and Sarah went down to Egypt? Tell them that you're my sister, not my wife. Because Abimelech, if he thinks that you're my wife, will kill me so he can take you into his harem because you are very pretty. The Bible says she was fair. And Abraham knew that kings would want such a beautiful woman in their harem, so tell them you're my sister. That was a scheme he concocted. You know, he concocted another scheme when he and Sarah were waiting for the promised seed to be born. Sarah came to him and said, why don't you go into my handmaid, Hagar? Maybe that is the way that God intends to fulfill this promise to give us a child. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Ishmael was born, and when Abraham lifted the child before the Lord, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee, God said, This is not thine heir. I will give you another son through Sarah, your wife. I like a comment by the late Warren Wiersbe. He said, Living by faith means living without scheming. It's a very important lesson in life. Yet interestingly, though we know Abraham had his failures, none of them are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, says verse 8, he obeyed. It says nothing about his partial obedience. It just simply says he obeyed. And when it says that God gave them a child, it says that Abraham and Sarah judged him faithful who had promised. It doesn't tell us about their schemes to try to help the Lord fulfill his promise. You know, we get in trouble when we start trying to help the Lord. God's perfectly capable of fulfilling his own promise, but yet it says nothing about that. This chapter says nothing about Abraham's failures. And one reason for that, I believe, is because the New Testament views the lives of God's people through the grid of the finished work of Jesus Christ. God sees you and me through the cross. And when he sees us through the blood of Christ, he sees no fault in us. Isn't that good news? That's a wonderful thought this morning. Today we're going to learn from Abraham that living by faith involves testing. You saw that in the reading, verse 17, by faith Abraham when he was tried. That word tried means tested. His faith was put on trial. He was put to the test. You see it also in Genesis 22, verse 1, which is the Old Testament narrative, the basis of our text in Hebrews 11 this morning, where it says, and it came to pass that the Lord God did tempt or test Abraham. Now, if you're like me, I've never liked tests. Some of you young people here this morning, I'm sure, dread tests at school as much as I did. I was always upset when the teacher would say, everybody take out a piece of paper and a pencil. We're going to have a pop quiz, a test that you haven't planned for. And I thought, oh, no, I should have listened better in class. And even the big test that I did plan for, you know, I'd cram for finals and try to do my best and was always unsure 
of my performance. I, I never did like tests. In fact, if we had had any political pull as young people back in the day, we probably could have made a case for banning all testing from public education. It would have been okay with me if we had never been tested again. But you know, a good teacher knows that tests serve a very important role, that tests are important. In fact, a teacher will test a student for two primary reasons. Number one, to reveal the progress that that student has made. It's sort of a gauge for how much the student has learned. Have you made any progress? Are you learning? Are you growing? And number two, to strengthen that student by exposing him or her to measured pressure. Now, the key word there is measured. You know, every parent knows that measured pressure is important for a child's development. What kind of child are you going to raise if you never ask them to do any chores around the house, parents? If they never are required to help wash the dishes or carry out the trash or feed the pets? If they're just allowed to sit in there and punch buttons and play games all day long and watch television and sleep late and never have any responsibility, how well is that going to serve that child in growing up? Every wise parent knows that measured pressure. Now, you don't want to give your child the kind of pressure that you're under because they're not capable of handling it at that age, right? But measured pressure, here a little and there a little, as they grow and they assume more and more responsibility, before long they're able to assume the pressures of life, you know, like you are. That's part of the developmental process. That's part of growth. You understand the concept, don't you? Perhaps you've heard the story about the little boy who saw a butterfly trying to free itself from the cocoon, and he felt so sorry for that butterfly that he tore the cocoon open so it wouldn't have such a struggle to get out. But you know, that butterfly never got off the ground. It rolled over on the ground and it would flop, but it couldn't fly. And what he didn't know is it needed the pressure, the stress of that experience in order to be able to fly. That's what strengthens it. That pressure is what strengthens it. And every good teacher knows that one of the important reasons that you test a student is because even though they dread it and even though they have to work hard and even though they have to deal with anxiety about how they perform, stress is crucial to growth and maturity in that student's life. The imagery in our text when he says, by faith Abraham was tried, and the word means he was tested, the imagery there is of a refiner of precious metals. You know, Peter speaks of the trial of your faith in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, which is more precious than gold that perisheth. Though your faith is tried with fire, it will be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. In other words, faith is tested just like gold or silver is put through the fire. Now, many of us have probably never seen a refiner at work. But it was once very common. It's still common. It's just institutionalized or it's, you know, they do it in factories. But if you've ever understood the process of refining where a silversmith will take, a, you know, silver ore or will take gold ore and put it in a crucible and light a fire under it and it melts the solid into a liquid and the dross rises to the surface and they're able to skim that off. 
by the time that that process is finished, even though it's required great heat and stress, yet by the time it's finished, the gold that comes out on the other side is pure gold. You know, it's removed the tin and the impurities. It's not as big of a lump when it comes out on the other side of the furnace, but it's pure. It's more pure. This is the imagery in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, when God says that Christ will sit as a refiner and purify of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi, those are the priests, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. God says, I'm going to purify the priests so that their offering will be more acceptable to me. I believe, my beloved, that God sanctifies his people through the fires of testing and trial. I wonder how many people here have never had any troubles, any trials. I know if you're of any age whatsoever, you've had your share of troubles, haven't you? And I suggest that one reason that we go through those troubles is that God can use them, and he does use them, to refine us and to make us stronger and better and more consistent in our service to him. I uh, have to tell you that I've never learned anything real valuable in my life in a time of ease, comfort, and prosperity. Every important lesson I've ever learned in my life has been learned in the crucible of suffering and in trial and affliction. And though we don't like it, though it's unpleasant, though it's hard to endure, yet faith requires testing and trial if it's going to grow. You know, the Bible talks about degrees of faith. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels, sometimes Jesus would say, oh, you have little faith. And then to someone else, he would say, woman, great is thy faith. Now, we know that everyone who's born of the Spirit is given the gift of faith. God gives to every man, that is every one of his children, a measure of faith. Faith is a fruit of the Spirit, and you're given the ability to believe. But you know that faith needs to grow, it needs to be developed, it needs to be exercised. And he said to the Thessalonians, Paul did, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Brethren, we are bound to give thanks to God for you. Beloved of the Lord, for your faith groweth exceedingly. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that could be said of you or me? Has your faith grown? Are you stronger in faith today than you were 15 years ago? I suggest the tests and the trials of our life are measured by a wise providence so that we develop, we get stronger and stronger and stronger and just as a parent would not give the ultimate test to a little toddler, you know, the, he measures the test that the child is able to handle. So, my friends, the Lord in his wisdom knows how to measure your trials to you and me so that he doesn't give us the most severe trial first. Here's what I'm saying. God did not first call upon Abraham to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah. That was not the first test. And it's a mercy that it wasn't because Abraham couldn't have handled it 25 years earlier. The fact is, my beloved, there are tests and trials in each of our lives as we look back. And perhaps you say, boy, I went through something recently. And if I'd have gone through that 30 years ago, 
I don't think I would have survived it. It would have been the end of me. But the reason you could take it right now, the reason you could handle it right now is because you've matured. Your faith has grown. And Abraham's first test was not take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Can you imagine what a severe test that would have been? No, his first test was, Abraham, I want you to leave home. And I suggest that these tests, when God allows them to touch our lives or even directly sends them into our lives, these tests are designed to show us areas in our hearts where growth is needed and also to purify and purge the impurities from our service so that we will be more consistent and more pleasing to God in the sacrifices that we make. So Abraham had three tests in his life. And again, they were measured according to the capacities he had to deal with them at each time. And mercifully, God has done that in your life and mine as well, by the way. And I don't know what the specifics are in your life, but I'm so thankful that I didn't have to go through what I would categorize today as the severest trial of my life. I'm so glad I didn't, wasn't called to go through that 50 years ago or 40 years ago because I couldn't have handled it then. But you see, he grows us through the early tests, through the flat tire, <laughs> you know, the flat tire. You say, oh, my house burned. Well, you see, it was a few flat tires along the way that, and the disappointments of those stresses and troubles that have prepared you to deal with the huge trauma. And what I'm saying is when God said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family, leave your homeland, leave what is familiar, that was the first test. And it was hard enough at the time, but it was preparing him. And then the next test was to wait for 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled regarding the birth of Isaac. Delayed gratification. That was a test. Here are the three tests of Abraham. First was a test of the uncertainties of the future. The test of uncertainty. Second, the test of perplexity. Why isn't this child being born? I'm confused, Lord. Why the delay? 25 years have passed since you promised me a child and he's still not here. Lord, I don't understand the test of perplexity. And these three tests will touch each of our lives as well. The test of uncertainty. What does the future hold? What is in store for me tomorrow? I don't know what tomorrow holds. That's the test of uncertainty. Then the test of perplexity. Lord, why? I don't understand. And then finally, the test of devotion. Who has your heart? Do you love the gifts more than the giver? Or is the giver more important to you than the gifts that he gives? That's the test that happened on Mount Moriah when God called upon him to sacrifice Isaac. Let's go through these quickly. Verses 8 through 10 in Hebrews 11 show us the test of uncertainty. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing. The test of uncertainty. He went out not knowing whether he went. God said, leave your home. God is saying to Abraham, you're not going to know where you're going or when you're going to get there. But I want you to let go of everything familiar and common and certain and exchange it for a foreign, unknown, and indefinite future. You know, some of you live in the same area in which you were born, I'm sure, and that's a wonderful thing. Some of you say, well, I just live just a few hundred yards from the house I was born in. I'm still at the old home place. These are still my old stomping grounds. 
And I'm happy for you. That's wonderful. I have to tell you, that's not my situation at all. I was born in the plains of West Texas, spent the first 18, 19 years of my life there, spent a little while in eastern New Mexico, then moved as an early 20-something to South Georgia and lived there for a little over a decade, went on to Kentucky after that, then to Tennessee and then to Alabama. Finally, I'm over here in North Carolina. I asked the Lord one time, Lord, send me somewhere where I can't bother anybody and nobody can bother me. And he put me as far east as you can go without getting into the water. (laughs) He's trying to protect them from me and me from them, apparently. You say, Brother Goins, have you put roots down in your life? Well, I've tried, but I've had to pull them up. And I've been on the move. You know, I've I've relocated on a number of occasions. I wonder how many of you have been called by God to leave what is familiar to you and to go into the unfamiliar territory of the future. And you say, I don't know what the future holds. If somebody had asked Abraham, where are you going? When he left Ur, he and his family walked out of Ur with their Coleman tents rolled up on their backs. And they were going out as a family on foot out of Ur of the cult. Now, Ur was a metropolitan area, a very civilized community. But as Abraham and his family were leaving, somebody might have asked him, where are you going? He would have answered, I don't know. Well, how will you navigate your course? I haven't a clue. Well, what will you eat? I'm not sure. Where will you sleep at night? I haven't any plans. How long will your journey take? I have no idea. How will you know when you get there? Well, I'm trusting God to show me. You say, Brother Goins, that is the most foolhardy approach that I've ever heard of. I can't imagine undertaking any task without having an idea of where I'm going. But you see, Abraham is living by faith. Now, here's a point I want to stress. The Bible gives us the most extreme examples of a principle that applies to our lives in a smaller sense. The Bible gives us the extreme. Will God ever call upon you without telling you or giving you any indication of what the future holds to leave home? You know, there are people out there who say, well, God told me to just sell everything and just go somewhere and I don't know where I'm going. And what do we usually think of those kind of people? (laughs) I usually think they need to have some uh, medical assistance, don't you? Maybe I want to keep my distance from them because they're what I would call extreme, right? You say, well, is it possible that that is true? It's possible, but I seriously doubt it because God gives us the most extreme examples in all of these Bible characters. For instance, Noah's flood. God flooded the whole planet. Is he going to do that again? No, but he may send messages through storms and nature. He may send us messages that way, right? That's the thought. I think we, uh, we need to say this. When God communicates to us today, it's through his word, okay? Somebody says, well, God told me that I need to go help this person. Well, I know he can do that, and he does give us impressions, but we need to learn how to try the spirits to see whether they have God or whether it's just something that we ate that was a little too spicy last night. Your impression may be indigestion, in other words. And I don't mean to make fun of people that are spiritual. I think it's a danger when people pose to be super saints. 
I'm not a super saint. I'm not super spiritual. I'm not angelic. In other words, I'm a human being, and you are too, right? And we live in a real world, and every once in a while, I've had impressions. When I try to preach, I try to say, Lord, guide my mind and show me what is needed and send me to a text. And I don't, have, I don't hear voices, and I don't see apparitions, and I don't have mystical experiences in which I say the Holy Spirit told me. But I do feel an impression, a drawing, a magnetism, an inward kind of inclination toward a text or a subject. And when I feel that, I'm pretty sure that the Lord is in the arrangements. And I go forward in faith, understanding that I could be wrong. But I think it's important to have some caution when it comes to these extreme examples. What I'm trying to say this morning is I'm always just a bit skeptical of people who say God is always communicating directly to them. I don't think that, for the most part, he communicates directly to us anymore today, for the most part. You've heard me tell the story about the young man who came to Charles Spurgeon, the great pastor, and said, Mr. Spurgeon, God told me I'm to preach in your pulpit next Sunday. Mr. Spurgeon said, well, that's funny. I was just talking to him, and he didn't say a word to me about it. <laughs> that's the problem with that kind of God-told-me approach is that you can't validate it. You can't verify it. It's just very subjective, right? It's always best to determine divine guidance by, is it consistent with the Word of God? For God will never direct you contrary to what He's revealed in His Word. The principles of Scripture, He's not going to direct you to do something that's sinful or ungodly. Secondly, do you see the providential unfolding of circumstances? For if God is in the arrangement, He will open the way like the waters of the Red Sea. He will roll them back before you, and you'll see things start to fall into place. And then you will have a consistent direction, inward inclination or burden that this is the right way to go. And then make sure that it's checked by the counsel of wise people around you. For the Bible says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. So run your thoughts and ideas by other people to see what they might say about it. And if you can pass those four tests, you can be pretty sure that the course that you're following is of the Lord. The point that I'm making is that Abraham leaving home is an extreme case. Now, I do believe God directed me to leave my homeland to take a pastorate in South Georgia, where I served for about 11 years, and then relocated me through circumstances and impressions and, you know, the providential weaving of discomfort into my life. He kind of flushed me from the nest like a mother bird flushes a fledgling bird to learn how to fly. You know, God in his providence knows how to weave change into our lives. I do believe that God has directed me. That's not to say that every decision I've made in my life is flawless and perfect and divinely inspired. It's not true. I've made some miscues along the way, but for the most part, I fear the Lord, and I'm trying to follow his leading. Well, Abraham, God communicated directly to him and said, I want you to leave Ur, and where am I going? I'll tell you when you get there. What road should I take? Which highway should I travel? I'll show you as you go. The extreme example is meant to teach us principles that we can apply to our lives. Does that make sense? What about the extreme example of waiting 25 years for the fulfillment of a promise? I seriously doubt that there are very many people who've ever waited that length of time 
to see a prayer fulfilled. Now, maybe you have. Maybe you have. But it's not the ordinary course. Usually, most of our concerns are fulfilled or God answers the prayer in 25 days or 25 weeks, maybe. But 25 years, that's a long time, right? What about taking your son up to slay him? Now, perhaps you've heard stories, horror stories of parents who were insane, who have maybe killed one of their own children and said, I heard a voice in my head that told me to do that. We know that that's not healthy mindedness, right? And somebody that uses the Bible to repeat the extreme behavior is certainly misusing scripture. The Bible gives us the ultimate extreme example to teach the principle. The principle is God is going to test you with uncertainty in your life in one form or another. Now, I'm sure every one of us has had experiences in which we didn't know which path to take. We were uncertain. Should I go here or there? Should I take this job or that one? Should I buy this house right now or not? Should I take this job or should I wait for another one? Should I get married or not? Uncertainty. Test of uncertainty. And it's a test, my friends, that even though you don't know what decision you will make, Yet by keeping your eyes on the Lord and trusting Him to direct you and to unfold circumstances providentially in front of you and to lead you along the way, like Abraham, you will eventually find your destination. But that's a form of testing your faith that each one of us will experience. What about the test of perplexity, the delayed fulfillment of Isaac's birth? You know, at age 75, God told Abraham, I will give you a son. Ten years later, when he was 85 years old in Genesis 15:5, God repeats that promise. Now, he's waited ten years. He still doesn't have any children, and God says, uh, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Fourteen more years pass, and he's 99 years old. Now, he was given this promise at age 75. That's a little old to get started with your family, isn't it, for the most people? Seventy-five years old, you're going you're gonna to be a daddy, Abraham. Sarah's going to be a mom. Okay, it's just it's kind of, we're kind of late here, but late to the party, but yet, okay, we're, but now 25 years have passed, or 24 years. He's 99 years old, and Sarah's 90. And God comes the third time and says, Abraham, Sarah, thy wife, will bear a child, a son. And Sarah's in the tent, and she hears it, and she starts giggling. <laughs> yeah, right under her breath to herself. And the Lord, standing outside the tent, the angel of the Lord with Abraham says, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah sticks her head out the flap of the tent and she says, I didn't laugh. You know how foolish we are to try to deny when the Lord knows more about us than we know about ourselves. But can't you see human nature in the Bible? He says, why did you laugh? Well, I didn't laugh. You couldn't have possibly heard me. The Lord knows every detail of our lives, whether it's verbalized or not. And then he said, oh, but you did laugh. And he said, is anything too hard for the Lord? And what an important question that is. Sarah, you're 90 years old. You're barren. You're medically incapable of bearing a child. And now you're too old to bear children, even if you were not barren. But I'm still going to fulfill my promise. And sure enough, this time next year, 
God says, Sarah will bear a son. And when that child was born, do you know what they named him? He laughs. Isaac. Isaac means he laughs. Abraham and Sarah both at one point, yeah, right. That'll be the day, the laughter of skepticism. But now this old couple holds this little baby boy in their hands and they laugh, not the laughter of skepticism, but the laughter of surprise. Can you believe what God is able to do? The laughter of surprise. May I say God can turn your laughter of skepticism into the laughter of surprise. God honors the faith of his children and his delays are not necessarily his denial. Remember that. God's delays are not necessarily God's denials. Isaiah 30 verse 18 says, Even so will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you, and even so shall he be glorified that he may have mercy upon you. God waits so that he can show more grace. As he waits, the situation becomes more hopeless. Abraham against hope, though, believed in hope that he might be the father of many nations. That is, when there was no evidence on which to base His hope, so far as the circumstances of life were concerned, he knew that the evidence resided in the character of God. And he knew that God was able to do everything that he had promised. Don't you love that phrase in the Bible, God is able? Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Hebrews 7.25. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Ephesians 3.20 says, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think, according to the power which worketh in us. I'm glad to remind you this morning, my beloved, that your God is able. He's able to go above and beyond your greatest imagination, your wildest dreams. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. We trust a God who made the universe by merely speaking. He was able to bring Israel across the Red Sea on dry ground and swallow Pharaoh and his 600 chosen chariots in the depths. This is the God who was able to stop the sun in its tracks so that Joshua could finish the battle against the enemy in the Valley of Ajalon. Here's the God who rolled the sun backwards 10 degrees to give King Hezekiah a sign that he had heard his prayer and would add 15 years to his life. And here's the God who raised our Lord Jesus Christ from death. And a God who can raise the dead is a God who's worthy of your trust. I'm telling you today, my friends, your faith may be put to the test, but as long as you keep your eyes on the God who promised, then you can keep going. You can pass the test. Even when it comes to the third and final test that Abraham experienced, the test of devotion. First, we see the test of uncertainty. Leave home. The test of perplexity as he awaited the delayed fulfillment of the promise for 25 years and sure enough, finally the child was born. Now this promised son that God has said in Isaac, this little child that you've waited for in him shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now God says take Isaac and sacrifice him, slay him on Mount Moriah. Now you talk about a head scratcher. It's an unprecedented assignment. And maybe you're here today and you say, Brother Mike, how should we explain this? I mean, this is pretty extreme. For human sacrifice has never been a part of revealed religion, God's worship. Human sacrifice is a pagan kind of activity. It's something the Canaanites did. 
in the worship of Baal or Molech or Chemosh. One of the reasons God judged the Canaanites was because they practiced the sacrifice of their sons and daughters in the fire. It's a mind-boggling kind of atrocity. We just can't hardly bear to think about it. Yet God tells Abraham, God commands his servant to take his only son up on Mount Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice. And perhaps you're here today and you say, Brother Mike, how should we explain that? How could we vindicate God? How could we justify such a command? It just seems ludicrous. And I have to tell you, I don't have all the answers to it. I know this, God is righteous and he can do no sin. Okay, we know that. It's always best to interpret the unclear in light of the clear when you run across something in the Bible that confuses you. Always interpret the unclear in light of the clear. What is clear in the Bible? God is just and righteous. He is the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right as he, he can do no sin. We know that. That's a given. So however you explain this has to be explained in those terms. And I have to tell you, I can't figure that, all of that out. I can give you two thoughts, though, that I hope will help you. When God said to Abraham, take Isaac up and sacrifice him, God did not want Isaac's life. God wanted Abraham's heart. Proverbs 23, 26 says, my son, give me thine heart. That's what God is saying to Abraham. He's saying, I'm not interested in Isaac's life, but I am interested in your devotion, your heart, Abraham. Do you love me more than you love what I've given you? And whether you know it or not, God will test you and me in many ways in our lives with that very test. It may not, and it probably will not, be as extreme as Abraham's, but God will call upon us to let go of things that we think are important to our lives from time to time. Yes, it may be that car that you've thought, I've waited for 20 years to get this car. I finally got it, and then suddenly there's a barn fire, and it's destroyed, and you say, Oh, I don't think I can live with it. God will test you sometimes, and me as well, to see if we love the giver of the gifts more than the gifts that he's given us. I don't know what form that will take, and I know it's scary to think like that. But you see, God is saying, I want your heart. My son, give me thine heart. The second thing I would say to justify this, this is a divine theodicy, a justification of God. This command, take your son up and sacrifice him, anticipates what will happen at the cross. Do you hear me? 2,000 years later, in which God the Father would offer up his only begotten son as a sacrifice for sinful people like you and me, all of the Bible is really pointing to the cross, okay? Let's always read our Bibles Christocentrically with a Christ-centered focus. Let's look at the Old Testament and see pictures of what's coming at the cross. For that's the dominant message of Scripture, that God provided for the salvation of poor sinners like you and me. So that you will go to heaven someday. My beloved, Jesus Christ is the theme of the Bible, and if you see Jesus Christ in the story of Abraham offering up Isaac, my friends, you've seen the ultimate reason for that story. 
For even Abraham saw it that day. John 8, 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Jesus said that. He rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. They said, you're not even yet 50 years old. When have you seen Abraham? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham saw the cross. He saw the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ when that ram was caught in the thicket, the male lamb. And Isaac was set free. And that lamb was offered in the stead of Isaac. Isn't that a picture of the cross? It should have been you. It should have been me hanging upon Calvary's cross. But Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died in my place. He represented me. He took your place. He died in our stead. Yes, indeed, Abraham saw Jesus' day, and he rejoiced in the message of the substitutionary sacrifice of the cross. The ultimate explanation I'll give you for this commission to offer up your son is that Mount Moriah anticipates the cross. By the way, do you know where Mount Moriah is located? It's one of those mountains round about Jerusalem. And do you remember that Solomon's temple was eventually built on that site? That's right, Solomon's temple was built on Mount Moriah. And some Bible students say that the cross where Golgotha stood was in that same region of mountains known as Mount Moriah. Is it possible that the same place Abraham sacrificed Isaac and the same place Solomon's temple stood is the same place the cross of Jesus Christ was set up. It's very possible. I wouldn't put it past the Lord to do that. The point is, this was a test of Abraham's devotion. The gifts God gives us are good things entrusted to our care. But we must be ready to return them back to him at any moment. And how did he pass this traumatic test, you ask? The text says, accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. Abraham reasoned through the situation by faith. God said, I want you to take your son. He must have said, you've just given me this son. Now take him and sacrifice him? How do I figure this out? I think that the process of deductive reasoning in his mind must have gone something like this. God does not endorse human sacrifice, for he is righteous and cannot sin. Number two... God does not lie, for he is faithful and he keeps his promises. Number three, therefore, since he has promised that Isaac will be the patriarch of the covenant family and he can't break his promise, this commission to sacrifice Isaac must be a test of my faith. And if Isaac dies, God will necessarily raise him back to life. That's what the text says, accounting. He did this, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Isaac was as good as dead for three days as he and Abraham walked up that mountain. Isaac said, Father, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. And I'll tell you, God did provide himself a lamb on Calvary's mountain some 2,000 years later. And he named that place, do you remember? Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide. God will provide. My beloved, because of the cross, God provided for your ultimate need. May I say he will provide for every need in your life and mine right now. If he loved you that much to spare not his own son, but deliver him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God resolves all of our questions. 
in his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, Abraham passed all three tests in his life. You too will be tested. Maybe you're being tested right now. May God bless you to pass the test of faith by keeping your eyes focused on Jesus Christ, knowing that he is able, that he has risen from the dead, that he is your savior, that heaven is your home, and heaven is a city that has foundations whose builders, makers, God. So though you may live in a tent or a cottage and be a pilgrim down here, and the world may think you've lost your mind, if you say, I'm headed for a city where the streets with gold are paved, I'm trusting God to carry me all the way home. That's what it means to live by faith. Faith is the promise.